It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Drops the throw, steps up, floats a bomb up the right seam, looking for Anderson. He's got it. They're not going to catch him. He's going to go the distance. Touchdown. Sam Darnold dials it up to Robbie Anderson. 92 yards. Bell into the middle of that line, and it's a touchdown. Big return for Crowder, 85 yards. Pass thrown, there was contact with the quarterback, and it's incomplete. They got pressure on Prescott. It was Adams who came blitzing in. He'll hit immediately when he got the handoff. You know that's <laughs> the Q-inator. Oh my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the TOJ Digital Studios, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And this is the weekend mailbag. So, of course, for that, we bring in the owner, the operator, the lead reporter, the whole shebang over at JetsInsider.com. Of course, above all of that, a very big deal, Mr. Chris Nimbley. Chris, how are you, my friend? Yeah, you know, just uh, over here, big deal in it, getting ready for another exciting weekend uh, and uh, another exciting Jets game, hopefully. Let's answer some mailbag questions, and we will start with this one from Jim Whiskey 3. I thought this was fascinating. It's not necessarily a Jets-centric question, unless Sam Darnold turns out to be a super elite quarterback, but the question revolved around what the requirements should be for a quarterback to go into the Hall of Fame now, because obviously it was very different back in the old days. Numbers were different. The rules were different. So expectations were different. It's a passing league now. So any quarterback that is a quarterback for a really long time is going to be near the top in a whole bunch of passing categories. Matthew Stafford would be an example of somebody who, by the time his career is over, may break a ton of passing records, but you might not necessarily think that he should be in the Hall of Fame. So I thought this would be a fun topic to start the show with today, Chris. Let's delve into this. I think we know a lot more now about the stats that you really should be looking at in terms of quarterback performance and evaluating it. It's a lot less about stuff like passer rating and touchdown to interception ratio and crude metrics like that. You want to look more at DVOA, QBR, some of the more advanced metrics. And then obviously it's football. So unlike baseball, where you can just sit there and look at numbers and really determine how good or bad a player was, you've got to watch the film and you've got to see how that individual player performed over the bulk of his career. And I understand that it's very difficult to do that because you're talking about, in some cases, guys that are playing 10 to 15 years, and we're talking about tons of games. And so if you weren't watching every single game, you got to go by the eyeball test, but then you're missing a ton, so you'd have to go back. But I do think that if you're a Hall of Fame voter, you really have an obligation to do that. You have an obligation to, when you're voting, go back and look at a lot of the tape and be more proactive about how you evaluate. Look at the more advanced metrics. So this all came about because when Manish was on the show, he said that he doesn't think Philip Rivers is a Hall of Famer. And I said, I think Philip Rivers absolutely is a Hall of Famer. And I think if you watched him over the last dozen years or so, you would agree. I think Tony Romo is another guy that is probably in that category. You look at the advanced numbers and you just watch the film. And Philip Rivers, I think, is somebody that's going to get penalized for the fact that he didn't win a Super Bowl. Tony Romo, same thing. 
But I don't look at it that way because it's a team sport, not an individual sport. If you want to say that a guy is borderline and that the crowning achievement of winning a Super Bowl or multiple Super Bowls should put him over the top, I totally understand that. If you want to say that that's the tiebreaker, cool, I get it. But if you're talking about something like Eli Manning versus Phillip Rivers, listen, I know Eli Manning had a really good playoff run those two years and he did win Super Bowl MVP. But you have to look at the totality of his career, and over the course of a 15-year career, he really was more of a middle-of-the-pack quarterback more times than not. He only had about three truly elite seasons, whereas Phillip Rivers was a top 5-10 to quarterback for almost the entirety of his career. Now, this year is different because he struggled quite a bit, but he's at the end of his run now, so you can't necessarily judge him the way that you did for the bulk of his prime. I think that's really what you have to do. You have to look at the entirety of of the player's career you have to look at the more advanced metrics and then you really have to watch the film and I think you have to be careful to let playoff success weigh too heavily into your decision because as I said it's something that's certainly a factor but if you have a guy that was an elite player at the quarterback position for a decade or so as opposed to as I said Eli Manning somebody who was not an elite player but just had those two really great runs in the playoffs I think the Hall of Fame is where you're talking about elite career and not elite runs so for me a guy like Philip Rivers is in for me a guy like Tony Romo is in you take it a step further obviously Tom Brady and Peyton Manning those guys are no-brainers Dan Marino never won anything although he did appear in one Super Bowl he absolutely deserves to be in he's one of the five greatest passers of all time Jim Kelly didn't win a Super Bowl, although he got to four of them. There's no question in my mind he was an elite quarterback. And that's the other thing, too. You can't compare eras. It's impossible. So you can't compare these guys from the 80s or the 70s or the 60s where everything was very different to what's going on today. You have to evaluate each quarterback compared to the other players in his era and the production that was being put out by the other players in his era. And I think if you do that for Tony Romo and you do that for Phillip Rivers, you are going to see somebody that was consistently among the very best every single year. And those are the guys, to me, that belong in the Hall of Fame. Now, it gets a little trickier when you talk about somebody like Kurt Warner. I know Kurt Warner went in, but he was a very borderline case. To be honest with you, without that second run in Arizona, I think there's no way you could put him in because he just didn't have enough elite seasons, and that's the way I look at it. I think longevity is important, no question about it, but I think part of that longevity is that you have to have a lot of elite seasons. You have to have a minimum of six elite seasons, but I really like it to be closer to eight. If you have 10, then that right there is pretty much the gold standard. But I think that Philip Rivers and Tony Romo were pretty much elite quarterbacks every season of their career or just about every season of their career. So for me, it's an easy decision to put both of them in. And for me, quite frankly, it's an easy decision to not put Eli Manning in because, as I said, only a handful of elite seasons. And even though he had some gaudy numbers based on the old school statistics, touchdowns, interceptions, passing yards, that kind of stuff, that's not really what I think you should be looking at. When you look at the more advanced stats, DVOA, QBR, and Michael Nania could speak to more of them. 
but he was really more middle of the pack for the bulk of his career. I think Stafford's an interesting case. I don't think he should go in. I think he's just below Hall of Fame level. He's been a really good quarterback. I think the same thing applies with Kirk Cousins right now if he were to keep this up at this current level. I think he's a really good quarterback, but not quite on that elite level. And you could really do a deep dive and dig into the guys that are active right now and who should be strongly considered and who shouldn't. And that would be a fun thing to do sometime where we could really take the time to break down a variety of different guys. But just from a cursory viewpoint in terms of what you should look at and what you shouldn't look at and who should be in and who shouldn't be in, I think in a general sense, that's really where we should be at with it is what you should be looking at statistics-wise, film-wise, and then how many elite seasons did this guy have and how did he stack up against the other quarterbacks of his particular era. Yeah, my first comment on here is going off what you said. If you have to compare everything within the era, um, you can't go back, especially you look at the way that games change. There's going to be bad quarterbacks that put up way more passing yards than Joe Montana ever had. That's going to throw for more touchdowns than Joe Montana ever had because the game is just so different now. Um, so you can't sit here and compare this era to 40 years ago. It just doesn't make sense. And now again, I'm somebody who is, I'm not big on using stats as a judgment for people. I uh, players, I, I actually hate it um, because the, it lacks a lot of context. And I'm not talking about uh, stat uh, be like, Oh, well he threw for this many yards. So he's got to be in how many of those yards came when they were in, it was in garbage time and they're trying to come back from a 30 uh, point deficit. Like there's so much context that's lacking with stats that I, I hate using that. And I'm not going to sit here and use QB wins for or against somebody The the argument that Eli Manning should be in the hall of fame because he won, he has two super bowls is absurd. Uh, I forget the exact, uh, rankings on this but I, I he had uh Eli Manning had one season where he was a top 10 quarterback according to DVOA and I believe he was either like number nine or 10 there uh that's that's not good enough to be Hall of Fame uh he he happened to be on two great Giants teams who made playoff runs and I mean that that first Super Bowl, he won that MVP, but he did not deserve that MVP. He didn't play great in it. Justin Tuck should have gotten it, or they should have just given it to the defensive line as a whole. Um, and this is just just like how nowadays uh, the MVP race has just turned into a best quarterback race. When a Super Bowl MVP is announced, unless there's one player that's just so obscenely absurd and obvious – they just default to give it to the quarterback. Um, so you have to look at everything. You have to look at their numbers. You have to look at the tape. Uh, like I just saw a, an article this week that this is about college, but Christian McCaffrey was talking about how a Heisman voter came up to him during his time going to the Heisman and said he didn't vote for him because he didn't stay up late enough to watch the Stanford games. Well, then you shouldn't be voting. If, if you're not going to watch the games of a Heisman finalist, then you shouldn't be voting. And if you're a Hall of Fame voter and you're not going to go back and do the work, then you shouldn't be voting either. Um, as far as Philip Rivers and Tony Romo, 
they're both without a doubt in my mind Hall of Fame quarterbacks. And Eli Manning is without a doubt not a Hall of Fame quarterback to me. Uh, they were better quarterbacks. And if you give just a, a generic average all across the board teams to all three of those players <clears throat> and for their whole career, those two guys are going to have a better career than Eli Manning. I think that's painfully obvious to anybody who sat down and actually watched these guys play. Um, so you can't just use stats. You can't just say, oh, they won Super Bowls. This Football is the ultimate team sport. That's cliche as hell, but it's true. And Trent Dilfer won a Super Bowl. That's not enough for him to get in, but doing uh, Trent Dilfer thing twice is. This stuff doesn't make any sense to me. So I don't like to look at numbers, but what you have to do is – the thing with Hall of Fame that's always stuck out to me is – you have to be among the best at your position for whatever the cutoff is. It's six years, eight years, ten years. You have to be among top five of that position for that long. And Philip Rivers and Tony Romo were never Tom Brady, uh, Patrick Mahomes, uh, Peyton Manning, you know, the best. But they were always right around that top five range. And Eli Manning never got to that top five range. He cracked it, the top 10 range once. And that's the best barometer for me. Because, again, you have to judge within an era. Um, and if you're consistently around the top five, then all of a sudden we can start talking about you as a Hall of Famer. If you're not top 10, I, I, we can't talk about this. That's exactly where I'm at too, Chris. I think you've got to be somebody that's in that top five to 10 range for eight to 10 years. I think six years is where you get to the borderline part, but anything below that, and I just can't get you there. I think it's a different story when you're talking about other positions. Terrell Davis is a very interesting case because the shelf life for a running back is so much shorter than the shelf life for a quarterback. So I think that you could make a case that you could accept fewer elite seasons from a running back than a quarterback. Terrell Davis, to me, is a very interesting case, and I would love to do a podcast at some point just debating guys like him and Gail Sayers and even some players that aren't in, like Sterling Sharp. But that's a whole other discussion for a whole other time. We're talking about quarterbacks here, and I think you hit the nail on the head. You've got to be in that elite range for a long period of time. You've got to look at the meaningful stats, like we said, the more advanced metrics. You've got to watch the film, and that's how you come to your determination. And you've also got to make sure that you compare to the other players in that era. You can't compare somebody from 2010 to somebody from the 1950s when they really weren't throwing the ball. It's just not a fair comparison. It's not apples to apples. So I think it's a really interesting discussion, and Chris, I'm sure we'll talk far more about the Hall of Fame stuff down the line because hopefully some more Jets will actually get into the Hall of Fame. We talked about Kevin Mawai, who got in this past year, and offensive linemen are obviously very difficult. There's no stats to really talk about them in terms of how good or bad they were. That's one where you really have to watch the tape. So this will be something that we talk about and revisit a lot more. More, but I love the question. Thank you, Jim Whiskey 3, for that one. It's a fun way to start the podcast this week. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. 
Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hooping with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to Hooping with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Next question comes in from the Jet Ranger. He says, what should the Jets do with their first round draft pick this year? Do you think they should trade down? Do you think they should make a downward trade? Or do you think that they should trade with a down arrow? So I'm guessing he thinks the Jets should trade down. Here's the thing. There's never a universal answer to this. I've talked about this before. It all depends on where they're drafting, who's on the board, what their board looks like, what they've determined in terms of positional value. There's so many things that go into this. I've talked about this before. There are some people that always want to trade down. There are some people that always want to trade up. There are some people that don't want to trade at all. But it's an individual circumstance. For example, let's say you're sitting at the fifth pick in the draft and you think that Andrew Thomas is far and away the best offensive lineman in the draft and you love him and you think he's so much better than anybody else who's on the board, period. You get a bunch of phone calls and teams are offering you deals. Maybe you went into this thinking that you wanted to trade down, but now you've changed your mind because Andrew Thomas is a guy that you have rated so much higher than anybody else that's available. Now, let's flip that. Let's say you have the fifth pick and all the guys that you had on the top tier are gone. You've got about eight guys that are graded right around the same, and so a bunch of teams call you up looking to trade up. Now, maybe you're much more likely to trade down because there are a whole bunch of guys that you think are right around the same, and so you don't mind going down a little bit, picking up extra draft picks, and getting one of those eight players. And I think that that's a lot of the way that Bill Belichick operates. Because what you'll notice is, if there's a player he really likes, he stays where he is and he gets the guy. If there are a bunch of players that he thinks are right around the same, that's when you start to see him trade down. I think as far as trading up... That's even a possibility too. I know a lot of people don't want to hear this because everybody's become anti-trade up, but it really depends. If there's a player that you absolutely love and you think that he's well above anybody else that's on the board and he's within range and you wouldn't have to surrender an insane haul to get that player, 
then it might be worth doing. Look at what the Jets did to get Darrell Revis. Look at what the Jets did to get David Harris. Those are two deals that worked out. Now, obviously, you've got to have the courage of your convictions. It's got to be somebody that you really, really like and you think is far above anybody else. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense because, as I said, if you have six or seven guys that are ranked right around the same on your board, then just stay where you are and pick one or you can trade down and get one of them. Either way, you're fine. So it's really situational. I don't think there's any one answer in terms of whether you should trade down, whether you should trade up, whether you should stay where you are. It also clearly depends on what other teams are willing to offer you. So maybe you do really like a player, but somebody offers you a package that's so insane that it's crazy for you not to take it. There are a whole bunch of things that weigh into these decisions. So especially now when we're so far out from the draft, there's no way that I could tell you what I think the Jets should do with that draft pick, especially since I don't even know where they're picking yet. That that right there, that last part is the biggest part. Um, once the season ends and we at least know where they're picking, then at least I, I get a little bit more trying to dive into this. Uh, but like you said, even then, then you still have to – it depends on how the board falls, what players are taken ahead, who's left, and then what the offers are going to be to jump up. You know, if if the Jets are uh, drafting third, let's just say, like we thought a couple weeks ago, they they were looking like before they got these couple wins in a row, they might have had a first, second, or third overall pick. With this draft, trading down would get you a huge haul because someone's either trading up for Chase Young or one of the quarterbacks. But if they – if they go on to beat the Raiders and they beat the the Bengals and, and the Dolphins, then all of a sudden they could be picking in the 11, 12, 13 range. And while you'll get offers to trade up there, people aren't putting together these huge packages to trade up to 13. You know, you're not going to get the RG3 package or even what the Colts got for trading out of the spot for Sam Darnold for that. So, you're going to have to weigh all that out and who's on the board, who's available, uh, all those types of things. Like you said, if if you're they're sitting there at 13 and they have six players they like that are evenly graded, then sure, go ahead and trade back to 16 and you know you're getting one of those players and just pick up an extra draft pick. Um, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of trading down. I'm a proponent of trading up in the right situation. <clears throat> and on its surface in a vacuum, just knowing how how much the Jets need, how they don't have like an abundance and overload of draft picks, I'd be, I'd say yes, absolutely think about trading down. But if they if they're sitting there at like number six or seven, and Andrew Thomas is still there, I'm probably just going to take Andrew Thomas. So uh, I know we're going to get some version of this question every week, and I get it more and more as we get closer to the draft but it's really an impossible thing to answer here because there's just so many unknown variables that uh, to consider right now and even leading up to the draft the day before the draft I'm still going to say we need to sit here and wait to see how the board falls and who comes calling asking about the picks but I, I am always going to be a huge proponent of trading down um, like I said there's you know when I'm not. I'm probably going to take Chase Young instead of trading down. It looks like the Jets probably aren't going to be in position to trade uh, to take Chase Young at this point, though. So we'll have to see how it all shakes out. But yes, as an option, 
trading down should always be on the table and should always be talked about and considered. I think all options should always be on the table, whatever the situation dictates. Next question comes in from G Tucker 1115. He says, what do you think the chances are of Greg Williams coming back as defensive coordinator if he doesn't get a head coaching job? If rumors and reports are true about them not talking, could they coexist for the benefit of the defense? I think them not talking is kind of the way that Gase likes it. He doesn't want to be hands-on with the defense. He'd rather just have somebody essentially be the head coach of the defense so that he can focus on the offense. So I would imagine that unless there's way more strife between the two of them than we've been led to believe, Greg Williams will be coming back because I know you don't love him, Chris, but no question about it, Greg Williams has done a fantastic job. He's done so well that it would even motivate some people to go buy tickets for a game. And if you're going to do that this Sunday, you want to make that trip to Cincinnati for the Jets and the Bengals, Make sure you download the Vivid Seats mobile app and get yourself an excellent ticket because you don't want to travel all the way to Cincinnati to sit in the nosebleeds. And if you're going to buy yourself an excellent ticket, get a great deal with the Vivid Seats mobile app, which will allow you to get up to 100 bucks off on your very first purchase if you use the promo code OVERTIME. Even if you don't want to go to that game, there's plenty of other stuff you can use that promo code for. You can go see a concert, a basketball game, a hockey game. Anything you want to see, you can use that promo code to get yourself some really good seats. Just download the Vivid Seats mobile app, enter the promo code overtime, and you'll get yourself up to 100 bucks off on your very first purchase. Now, Greg Williams will be coming back because after Bounty Gate, he's never getting another head coaching job again. The best he's going to do is interim head coach in circumstances like we saw last year with Cleveland, or if, let's say, Gase had gotten fired midway through this year or gets fired midway through next year. Other than that, he's never getting another head coaching job. So I fully expect Greg Williams to be back next year. Like I said, the only caveat is if there's more going on behind the scenes than we're aware of. I, I, I agree with you that I think that's just how Adam Gase likes it. I also think this is how Greg Williams likes it. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think it's uh, so much that they're not talking as in that they, they just can't be bothered with each other as Greg Williams does his own, is left to do his own thing, and that's how he likes it. Um, and Adam Gase is like, hey, you got this under control. I'm going to focus on the offense, and that's how he likes it. Um, I think it's almost a certainty that he'll be back. I agree. There's no way he's getting a head coaching job. Um, yeah, my feelings on Greg Williams, it, it's hard to explain because I think he is a, he's done an excellent job. There's still some, some things he continues to do over and over that just absolutely frustrate me because I'm just like, ah, just, it's, it's the same thing over and over again, especially with the having your – the linebackers cover these running backs and tight ends on big third downs. Um, I think he's a really good uh, defensive coordinator. I just think sometimes people keep this genius uh, tag on him so much that I'm just like, uh, sometimes I, I feel a need to fight back on it. But I think it's almost assured that he'd come back um, unless there's just something we don't know that he's just miserable here. <laughs> um and he's just like, hey, I want to go somewhere else. But I think he'll be happy to come back. Um, he's going to know that everything he's had to do and work with, and he's going to get a- Avery Williams to most likely back unless they move on. But they'll upgrade the defense too. I think he'll look forward to coming back. And, again, I, I think this is how they both like it. Adam Gase wants somebody who can just say, you go do this. 
and we don't even have to discuss anything. You're in charge of the defense, and let me focus on this. So I think that uh, that that's most likely going to be the case, and there's, he's not going to be getting head coaching opportunities. So uh, I, I fully expect him to be back next year, and I think that's a good thing. Hey, guys, Greg Peterson here with the Baseball Betting Podcast. As we know, the MLB season is back in our lives. It's going to be a 60-game sprint unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And I'm going to be giving you picks every single day, seven days a week with Major League Baseball. We're also going to be keeping up with the KBO as well. If you like baseball and you like being able to make some money, subscribe to the Baseball Betting Podcast with Greg Peterson on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Next question comes in from Matt Mastro Giovanni. He says... How good do you think Foley Fadakasi can be? Do you think he could be a pro bowler, solid starter for years to come? He's looked a lot like Snacks this year, to be honest with you. I compare him to Chris Jenkins a little bit. I don't think he's quite that explosive. Chris Jenkins was such an incredible player. I just threw that out there because both guys have shown that they can overpower opposing offensive linemen in a way that you rarely see. But I think Chris Jenkins was an incredible player that very few people really understand the depths of, especially if you weren't watching the Jets at the time or Carolina at the time when he was playing for Carolina. I do think that he has a chance to be in that Snacks Harrison mold. He might be a pro bowler. I think he's going to be a guy that's going to be a force in the running game for many years to come if he keeps this up just based on what he's done this half season. Now, to be fair, it's only been a half a season, but we're talking about what we could be projecting him as, and I think that his upside is to be somebody like Snacks. I think the downside is, as you said, a solid starter for years to come, and either way, as a sixth-round pick, that would be really good value. Yeah, with Folo Fadakasi, first let me just say, Chris Jenkins is one of those players that, like, man, did injuries really rob him mm-hmm. of being able to be the player he was meant to be and supposed to be. And if you didn't watch him at Carolina, then you missed a, a hell of a player. Uh, yeah, I I see why you make the uh, uh, Folo comparison to him. But, yeah, he just doesn't have that explosiveness mm-hmm. strength, Chris Jenkins. But that's not a knock on Fadakasi because that explosiveness, Chris Jenkins, when he was healthy, was incredible. I mean, just for somebody that size, that, that type of get-off was just just baffling how it's even phys- physically possible. I think the uh, Snacks Harrison is a, is a really good comparison. I don't think he'll ever be quite at that level. But I do. I think somewhere between really good starter and snacks is probably what we can expect of Folo Fadakasi. Um, now, again, we're gonna. He's he's able to do a lot of what he's able to do because he's not the focal point uh, that that the opposing offensive lines uh, focusing on. But that's going to continue to be the case most likely. So I I I think he. It seems like. You know, that it was a really good pick and they will have a good player going forward for years to come. Uh, somebody that can do that job and and do it really, really well. I, I think they found something with them there. Next question comes in from the New York Jets fan podcast. They say, as much as this team needs offensive line help, if there's no offensive line player valued in the top 10, assuming that that's where the Jets pick in the upcoming draft, what position do you think the Jets should go for? I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but that's really going to depend on who's on the board at the time. I can't really tell you right now without knowing who was picked and who's still available. 
I think there could be some very intriguing wide receiver possibilities. I think there could be some decent defensive backs that you might want to take a look at. But it's really hard to say what to do and what position to pick without knowing where they're going to be picking and who's on the board at the time of the pick. So this is something that I think we could really revisit as we get closer to the draft and we know who's entering the draft because that's another thing. There's going to be some underclassmen that decide not to declare for the draft that we're expecting to be in the draft. So there are a lot of variables here that we can discuss as we get closer to the draft. Obviously, the ultimate answer to this would be on draft day when we know exactly who's on the board, but at least we could have a clearer picture as we get closer and as things develop and as we realize where the Jets are picking, who's going to be available, what the boards are starting to look like in terms of who everybody thinks is the best players from 1 to 30 or 1 to 60 or whatever. So I think this is a question that we should really revisit later on when we have more information. I agree with every single thing you said. And what we talked about uh, uh, the draft related question earlier here, but just just for fun, let's just play this hypothetical where the Jets are picking late, you know, seven to thirteen range somewhere around there, and there is no offensive lineman on board that they like there, and they're not trading out of the pick, and you're gonna say, gun to my head, pick a position. I'm gonna go say, give me a receiver. Because I, I don't care about the defense in this draft unless I'm getting Chase Young. I don't I don't care. I want to build this offense and around Darnold. And I, ideally, it would be an offensive lineman for this offensive line, but there's no one there. And this, again, this receiver class is absolutely outstanding. And if I can't get Jerry or Judy, then I will happily settle for C.D. Lamb. Uh, like, <laughs> if I will happily settle – for uh, one of the Clemson guys or any of the other Alabama guys too, uh, not all that high, obviously. But I, and I'm not the biggest fan of taking wide receiver in the first round either. But with the way that this offense needs weapons, the way that this offense just needs to be better for Sam Darnold, I feel comfortable saying if if I'm not taking a an offensive lineman in the first round. I'm taking a wide receiver in the first round. Next question comes in from Michael Christopher, another draft-centric question. He says, looking at the draft and the way Adam Gase values wide receivers, he signed Danny Amendola and Albert Wilson. Do you think there's any way he would sign off on drafting a wide receiver first with a high pick? And if so, which one do you think fits best, Jerry Judy or CeeDee Lamb, who I compare to Des Bryant, which might be a perfect fit because... Darnold seems like Tony Romo, so it could be like the younger version of Romo to Des Bryant. Also, if all is equal and Douglas wants to get draft picks to rebuild, who would you trade given that the packages were equal? Quinn and Williams or Jamal Adams, who's looking like a perennial all-pro. Let's say the package you could get back for either guy was a first and two second round picks. So let's start with the first part of this. I'm sure that the Jets will consider picking a wide receiver depending on who's on the board. If Jerry Judy's still there when they pick, if CeeDee Lamb is there when they pick, I'm sure they'll be in consideration unless there's an offensive lineman that Joe Douglas really loves or there's a pass rusher that he really loves. I would think that wide receiver is definitely a possibility if the Jets pick within a certain range in the draft. I think Judy and CeeDee Lamb would both be good fits in the Adam Gase offense. 
As far as the second part of your question, who would you rather trade? That's such a tough call because with Jamal Adams, you got a guy who's a proven elite player at his position, but he plays a position that's not necessarily a premium position, and you're going to have to pay him a lot sooner. With Quinn and Williams, I know that he hasn't quite put up the flashy stats that you would like to see from the number three pick overall yet, but it's a little early to determine whether or not it's worth trying to ship him out for a mega haul. Obviously, the Jets decided not to do that when they held on to him. And actually, Michael Christopher had a really good point in a different thread on Twitter. If you look at the article that Manish Mehta of the Daily News put out about Quinn and Williams, he had some really telling quotes from John Gruden, who by all accounts tried to trade up from number four to number three in the draft to get Quinn and Williams and was unable to do so, so they took Cleland Farrell. I wonder if the Raiders were that team, considering they have so much draft ammo, that kept calling the Jets. That was the report Adam Schefter had, that there was one team that kept calling the Jets and upping their offer and upping their offer for Quinn and Williams. And the Jets said no That is an interesting thing to think about And if you look at what Gruden said He said that Quentin Williams is doing a lot of the things That don't show up on the stat sheet He's really helping to make this Jets defense An elite run stopping unit And he sees all the potential in the world with him And thinks that he's going to be a special player So I don't know what to tell you on that one I would hesitate to trade either one of them If pushed I might trade Jamal Adams before Quentin Williams only because I think that the value of Adams is never going to get higher and the value of Williams is probably not as high as you would like it to be right now. But you watch Jamal Adams right now and like we talked about before, thinking about putting an elite edge rusher in there and getting the two inside linebackers back and thinking about the damage that somebody like Jamal Adams could do in this Greg Williams defense if he had more help and opposing teams had to key in on other players. Man, makes it difficult So I'm going to take the easy way out of this And I'm going to say that I wouldn't trade either one of them right now I guess if you pushed me, it would be Adams Only because I think that his value is so high That you could get the maximum for him that you could ever get But in your theoretical scenario, they get the same offer So that throws a monkey wrench into it What I'm saying is, I would like to see both of these guys be here Because I think they could both be cornerstones of this team But I do understand the value of trading Jamal Adams and not paying a safety $15 million. But if he keeps playing the way that he's been playing and he gets help in the form of an edge rusher and all of a sudden this defense becomes an elite unit, ooh, watch out because he could be something that we've never really seen before in the NFL. Yeah, okay. As far as uh, I absolutely believe that Gase and Joe Douglas would take a receiver in the first round if that's how the board shakes out. Um, Again, I think it's Joe Douglas's call – and if, you know, Andrew Thomas is there or works there and he likes work, I think that's what he'll do. Uh, but if there's not an offensive lineman there that he would like, I do think that a, a receiver would probably be the next best thing. And that's not just because that's my opinion. I think that they would agree partially because of the reasoning I've said about how you just need to go with the offense here, but also because these receivers are that good. Um, we're not just talking about just, Hey, let's just grab a receiver. We need a receiver. I mean, uh, Doug Judy. I mean, uh, no, what Brooklyn nine, 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 Jerry Judy, uh, 
is is insane. So if you can get Judy, he's there on the board. You take him, and you don't even hesitate. Same with C.D. Lamb. Same with T. Higgins. I'm I'm all about these guys. It'll help Sam Darnold. It'll help this offense, and I think that they would both be willing to do that if an offensive lineman isn't there that they want. But I do think that ideally you give Joe Douglas true serum right now, he's going to tell you he wants to draft an offensive lineman with that first overall pick, uh, with that first round pick. I mean, um, as far as the trade, my answer to would I trade, uh, who would I trade between Quinn and Williams and Joel Mall Adams would be who's going to get me the most in return. Mm-hmm. Um, that and that too, I would go with the situation presented to us, as you pointed out, was they're getting the both both in return, and it's the same it's the same debate back and forth that you were talking about. Because yes, right now it, it looks obvious you'd rather lose uh, Quinton Williams than Jamal Adams, but uh, Jamal's value, as you pointed out, is as high as it's going to be, and. He's eligible to be paid as soon as next year. And I'll throw this in. If the Jets do not trade Jamal this offseason, if they either decide that they don't want to trade him or they listen to offers and nobody's offering enough for them to trade him, then you sign him this offseason. You sign him as soon as he's eligible because the price is only going to go up. I wrote about this after the game. I said the price of the brick is going up. And then crossed out brick and said safety. Um, <laughs> it's only going to go up, and you can pay, you can wait to pay him if you want. But we know what Jamal is, and he's a playmaker. He can wreck games at times. So if you're not, if you know you're not going to trade him, you lock him up before the price gets even higher. There's no questions left with him. You know what he is. You pay him the second you get the chance, unless you're going to trade him. But he's closer to getting that bigger tag, so he's going to cost you more money. Quinn and Williams you're going to have on his rookie contract for another four years. Now, it's an expensive rookie contract because it's third overall, so it's not cheap. But it's you're going to have a lot longer to go there. I would probably – the same package, though, I would probably – uh, be more willing to t- uh, talk about trading Quinn and Williams than Jamal Adams just because uh, we know what Jamal is and what he can do here now. And I think you could uh, replace uh, a Quinn and Williams a little bit uh, closer there than you can to Jamal. So I'd probably lean to keeping Jamal if everything's the same. But my answer would really be, who can I get the most for? And again, if I'm not trading Jamal this offseason for whatever reason, I am signing him immediately. It is interesting, though, Chris, that in some quarters, Greg Williams got criticism for not understanding how to use Jamal Adams. I think those critics have been silenced for good. Yeah, I I didn't understand that at the time because I remember when when they first brought him on, I was the biggest thing that I was saying is Greg Williams is going to love him some Jamal Adams and then people like to point out about oh Jamal Adams is going to be playing 30 yards off the line no that's Marcus May is going to be playing that far back Jamal is the strong safety and uh, and Greg Williams does not use strong safeties like that Greg Williams 
Now, he hasn't used a strong safety exactly like he's used Jamal, but he's been doing that in large part because of the injuries and the, the, the linebackers as well and because of the lack of pass rush. So he's decided – but the way Greg Williams has always coached was always going to be beneficial to, the, to Jamal Adams. And I, I don't understand how anyone could have paid close attention to – the way Greg Williams has run his defenses and not seen that that was going to happen, what was going to be what happened. That's going to wrap things up for the mailbag. We'll have more questions tomorrow. Plus, we'll have the injury report from Dr. Stoller, my brother Craig's picks, and a whole bunch more. So make sure you're back for that tomorrow. In the meantime, be sure to follow Chris on Twitter at CNimbly and at Jets Insider. Read his very big deal work at JetsInsider.com. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and TurnOnTheJets.com.